Welcome back to the Health Call Radio Hour. If you've got a question, you don't have to give blood to get the answer. Just drop us a line on the Health Call website at healthcall.live. That's healthcall.live. Or message us on the Health Call Facebook page. Now, back to health and wellness correspondent, Lee Kelso. Welcome back. This half hour, we turn to something happening behind the headlines, sort of behind the scenes, that I think you will find very interesting. A group of lawyers are taking the lead in a movement to redefine what it means to be declared brain dead. Brain death is both a clinical and a legal definition of death. It occurs when the brain has stopped working and is unlikely to recover, but the body is being kept alive by machines that breathe or pump blood. This is very different from a coma. We're talking about situations where there's no chance of survival without artificial means. The big concern here is that science has gotten ahead of the law, and it's time to be more specific about the conditions that mean someone can confidently be declared brain dead. Not only that, there's pressure to make sure the definition is consistent from state to state, because today the rules vary when you cross state lines. Reporter Max Kozlov writes about the challenge this can pose in an article for the prestigious Nature magazine. About 20,000 families face a terrible choice for their loved one every year, and the trauma often involves a youngster. As Max explains, that is exactly what happened to a California family after a very common childhood operation. Yeah, very tragic case. It unfolded over the span of nearly five years. It started in 2013 when a girl named Jahai McMath uh, was undergoing a routine tonsillectomy. She was getting her tonsils removed. You know, she woke up after the surgery, seemed to have gone fine. They until they discovered um, just a massive uh, bleeding um, coming from the, uh, the the surgery wound, and it unfortunately it it uh, led to her, her heart temporarily stopping, and that then meant that her brain wasn't getting the oxygen that it needed to perform. And, you know, the, the brain really rapidly um, loses functionality if, if it doesn't get the oxygen it needs. And so uh, she suffered some very serious brain damage um, in that time. She was uh, hooked up to a ventilator and it looked as if she might be alive. They went through these uh, this battery of tests and determined that she was indeed brain dead, that all functions of her entire brain had stopped. And this is difficult. I mean, you know, if you're a parent in that situation, I mean, you, your daughter just went in for a routine tonsillectomy and all of a sudden you're being told that she's dead. She's brain dead. This all unfolded in California and uh, she was issued a, a death certificate. In, in these cases, there's just, there's no chance of recovery and you know, there, there's this fear that if there's no chance of recovery, that the ICU could be filled with a lot of people who who are in this kind of s strange status. Yeah, this suspended um, animation. And so the family then, for religious reasons, couldn't accept or didn't want to accept that, right? So and didn't or that they would remove her from the machine. So they went to was it New Jersey? So so yeah, there's a whole legal showdown that went down um, where you know they tried to. Uh, overrule the the brain death declaration. The court said no, and there was this whole back and forth until uh, I believe that they agreed to release her into her custody. 
in that time and brought her to New Jersey, which is the one state that allows for an opt out for religious reasons to a determination of brain death. Hmm. And, and there she stayed connected to artificial support for another four and a half years. And in that time, they were trying to make the case that she was not brain dead. But the, the scientific consensus seems to be that although there were these limited movements that they saw, that those didn't amount to any kind of coordinated reflex. It didn't show that she was able to breathe on her own or was uh, capable of, of consciousness on her own. And those are kind of the two fundamental tenets of of what I want, what it means to be alive, really, but also what brain death is kind of testing for, what all the tests uh, look for, you know, because she is a teenager at this point. Um, she underwent her first menstruation, which kind of shocked everybody because that's not something that you would maybe expect from somebody who is legally dead. And that that actually kind of gets at the crux of some of these challenges to the notion of brain death, because if that were to be the case, you know, if she at her first menstruation, then there's a part of the brain that usually kind of starts the cascade of hormones that are responsible, that are necessary to make that happen. Um, but it's this very limited, very small part of the brain called the anterior hypothalamus. And what uh, researchers told me is that in some people who are brain dead, most people do not have any kind of activity there, but in a limited subset, because it receives blood in a different different from the rest of the brain, um, that maybe function could be still preserved there. Um, and that kind of goes against this, again, this whole notion of all functions of the entire brain. Um, and, you know, there could be a potential argument there to be made that not all functions of her entire brain had stopped. Therefore, um, she is not dead. But at the same time, it's not something that of course, would necessarily help her recover in any way to be able to start breathing again or have the capacity for consciousness. It's kind of a bodily hormonal function, if that makes sense. So that was kind of the the, the big challenge there, really, in, in kind of communicating to the public what exactly this notion of brain death is. So uh, just let's close that loop. Uh, did she pass away? What What finally happened with this young woman? After four and a half years, um, she suffered another bout of internal bleeding. And at that point, her heart did stop permanently. And she was issued a second death certificate in the state of New Jersey. They had a legal challenge kind of based on this argument that I was just putting forward about the fact that her, not her, her entire, uh, not all functions of her entire brain had stopped. Uh, They're trying to get her death certificate in California erased. Hmm. With her second death certificate issued, they withdrew that complaint. But it's not just Jahai McMath. Brain death is rare. You know, the vast majority of deaths are declared under the cardiorespiratory criteria, we, we call them. But there have been other lawsuits that have been popping up in a similar vein. You know, there's just this, um, and it's not just limited to brain death. There's been much more uh, pushback against the medical community and kind of questioning some of these things that we took maybe at face value when they first came about. And so that's part of the reason that that um, this group of lawyers and clinicians and bioethicists have come together to try to 
to try to iron this all out. Yeah, it sounds so simple on a soap opera or a TV show, right? Oh, they declared him brain dead. But obviously a lot of uh, gray area here that these folks are trying to work out. Now, my understanding is this is a group of not necessarily doctors, but as you said, lawyers and others who are going to write some standards and the expectation is then states would would apply these standards to new laws so we'd have a uniform kind of description of what brain death is. Is that where this is heading? It's it's a little bit confusing because in the U.S., this determination of death act is determined on a state by state level, not on a federal mm -hmm. level, at least for now. And it doesn't seem like that's going to change anytime soon. And so there's this organization called the Uniform Law Commission. And they see they they write model legislation for all kinds of different things, and they make uh, these model laws where you know it'd be really great if every state had the same law for this. And brain death is one of those things, or death in general. It's like you wouldn't want to be alive in one state and dead in another state. And so they urge state legislatures to adopt kind of their version of the law and try to kind of make sure they're as uniform as possible. Basically, the, the, the next steps here is after it passes the Uniform Law Commission, at that point, it's sent out to all of the state legislatures, and they can at that point decide whether they want to take it up, whether they want to revise it from the 1980 standard, if they want to revise it in their own way in any way, shape, or form. So it still faces quite the uphill battle, um, even when even if they decide on something that everybody's happy with, the state legislatures might not. So we are a long way from that decision point, but clearly all of us have a stake in what this group of lawyers comes up with and how states eventually redefine brain death. Max reports that brain death happens only in about 2% of adult and 5% of child death cases. So yes, it is rare, but there's always the risk following a brain injury, partial suffocation, blood loss, or infection. So when we come back, we're going to take a look at how changing the law could affect your chances of getting a heart, kidney, or liver transplant, and why experts say choosing our words carefully can save your family a great deal of emotional stress. If you need to run, no problem. You can always catch the podcast of today's show on all the major services or visit the Health Call website at healthcall.live for a video version of today's guest interview. And while you're out there on the web, consider joining our mailing list. I'll send you just one email per week with a preview of the topics we'll be covering. You can also use the contact form to drop me a line. I read every message and you'll always get a personal reply. Again, the website is healthcall.live. Okay, we are back in a flash with more of the Health Call Radio Hour. This is the Health Call Radio Hour, where treatments are always free, the stethoscope is never cold, and you don't have to wear an exam gown. Now, back to health and wellness correspondent, Lee Kelso. Thanks for staying with us and thinking through what it means to redefine the legal and medical definition of brain death. A growing number of lawsuits have been filed as families come into conflict with the current understanding of what constitutes brain death. 
That is why the Uniform Law Commission in Chicago is working to rewrite the legal definition and offer that language to the individual states for passage into law. Right now, laws are sort of a hodgepodge that vary when you cross state lines. This is important for families left with a tough decision for an accident victim, but also to people who are waiting on the organ transplant list. Reporter Max Kozlov writes about all of this in an article for Nature magazine, exploring how the laws are stuck in the 1980s, but at the same time, science and medicine have charged ahead. At a time when the demand for organ transplants is exploding, what would rewriting the law mean for patients? That's a good question. So, you know, a lot of this is still very hypothetical because we're still in the very uh, drafting phases of this revised law. So it's hard for me to say with any kind of certainty, but some of the researchers I spoke with painted a picture of why this debate is so important. And that's because brain death declarations are the minority of all uh, death declarations. The majority of organs for transplantation come from brain dead patients. And this makes sense if you think about it. Um, organs have a very limited window in which they're viable. And so if you go to somebody whose heart has stopped, those organs aren't getting any more oxygen. Whereas somebody who is brain dead, because they're still hooked up to a ventilator, you know, you can kind of with pretty, with precision to, to procure organs for transplantation. And again, that's not the point of the concept of brain death, right? It's not, it's not just so we can right. uh, take organs from people. It's, it's also this notion of clinicians worry that if everybody was able to opt out of brain death, then ICUs would be overrun. And they're already quite overrun with all of the usual suspects. So to, you know, to have another stressor on the system of kind of, as some of my sources said, hopeless cases, um, that's kind of part of the reason that this original concept came to be in the late 60s. And they stressed again and again that there has never been somebody who has regained consciousness or the ability to breathe after being declared brain dead. It's it's absolutely heartbreaking. But you know the the it, it, the the standard that started here in the United States has now been adopted in the majority of countries around the world. So it's be, it's been a very powerful concept. And you know you, your article points out the absolute importance of the detail here. So for example, the word irreversible versus permanent. They kind of aren't the same, but yet they sort of have the same implication in this scenario. Explain that that fine little detail. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> uh, This had to be explained to me something like 10 times before I could wrap my head around it. But basically, the concept is that it's hard for clinicians to prove that something is irreversible, right? Because that would mean that maybe at time point, it, 10 minutes after the, the death is declared, would you then go in and try to restart heart or brain function? How about an hour after? Whereas if something is permanent, that kind of says that, okay, it stopped. We, we've, we've tried to uh, restart it maybe at the time, but it, you know, if we let this be, uh, they won't regain uh, heart or brain function. And the reason this is important isn't because clinicians, again, don't want to restart those functions. Of course they do. Right. It's because there are these new technologies, and this is part of the inspiration for the article to begin with. Um, there's this kind of crazy experiment that was done where they, um, in pigs, were able to restart some mm -hmm. cellular function in organs an hour after the pigs had died. And that's nowhere, that's not, we're not talking about actually the kidneys starting to work or the brain starting to work in any way. And this is done in pigs. But it, 
I think clinicians are talking about it because somewhere down the line, 50, 100, hundreds of years from now, if, if one day that is possible, they want to develop a framework that kind of accommodates for these intricate details where even if you could restart brain or heart function after five hours, I mean, would you want to? Is that sufficient to sustain a human life? And that that's why they're talking about some of these nitty gritty issues. There's also one other thing I'll say is there's this new type of organ donation or donation after a circulatory death. And that is kind of when you're hooked up to a machine that again can can keep your organs oxygenated after your heart has stopped. It kind of solves that problem of your organs starting to fail quickly after uh, after cardiac death. Um, and so the, we there 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 is just new technology that is allowing um, more organs now than ever to be collected. But in those cases, again, it's it might still be possible to restart some heart function, but again, not in a way that perhaps sustains a human life. And so that's why they're talking about all of these really specific wording details. Yeah, to that point, you know, I walked away from your article thinking, as I'm writing an advanced directive, I, you got to be very specific. You can no longer say in the event of brain death. Now you have to describe very specifically what brain death means to me, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and you know, one of the one of my uh, sources for this story, she's a, a pediatrician and bioethicist, and she said, Honestly, more than anything, like this, this should be great incentive for you to um, to file an advanced directive to be thinking about these issues so that your loved ones aren't guessing what you would have wanted uh, after or when you're in this kind of situation. You know, that's where a lot of this is coming from is this kind of disconnect between the loved ones who are trying to make these really difficult decisions about what they would have wanted. But things like advanced directives can can help, uh, you know, underscore exactly what you know, what it is, how, how you want to be treated. Um, if you're in, if you're ever in that kind of situation. So she kind of reiterated she she made a plea of, you know, talk to family members, talk to uh, legal experts if you need. But get, you know, have something on paper that kind of has something uh, that says about how you want to be treated if you're ever in these kinds of situations. Again, that is reporter Max Kozlov, who wrote about the effort to redefine brain death laws for Nature magazine. No one wants to think about a tragedy like this in their family, but as doctors are ever better at keeping our bodies alive, yeah, it's smart to have a plan. So here's some advice from the experts. Be specific about your wishes. Make it easier for your healthcare proxy to make a decision they know you would agree with. Then talk to your loved ones about your advanced directive so they know you have one, and also so they understand your instructions and will agree to honor them. Your wishes may change over time, so the experts say it's a good idea to review your advanced directive regularly. In the show notes, I'll include links to resources from the National Institute on Aging, the Bar Association, and a group called the Conversation Project. They offer a toolkit to start having this very important conversation within your family. I am glad you are here today. I do thank you for listening. Hey, you know, our topics aren't always so serious. Health and wellness can be lighthearted, even entertaining, and we make it that way. So I hope that you'll join us again next week on this great radio station for another edition of the Health Call Radio Hour.
You've been listening to the Health Call Radio Hour. The discussion of conditions and treatments on this program is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment by a healthcare professional who knows you and your health needs. Find the podcast of today's episode wherever you get your podcasts or watch extended video versions of today's interviews on the Health Call website at healthcall.live. While you're there, drop us a line to ask a question or suggest a topic for a future broadcast. Join us each week on this station for another edition of the Health Call Radio Hour. Podcasts by Federated Media.